0: So at the end of last week, the US government released the report from the Director of National Intelligence stating and finally confirming that MBS did directly order the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. It's a very short, simple report. It doesn't add anything new to our understanding, just stating that those are the facts. It has the list of the people involved, who are basically the people we've already identified over two years ago. And it says that these people were working within a context in which there was an atmosphere of fear and there's no way they could have organized to do something like this without being directly ordered to do it. So that was it. It was anticlimactic in a way, coming after days of delays and there was no new information. But in a way, it also changes everything because now the US government has basically officially admitted that these are the facts and things can't go back to normal again after that's happened. So you wrote an article, Yed, about what justice for Jamal looks like, now that we know that, and it's an extremely important article. Because this is an extremely critical moment. We're at a juncture where the future of US policy towards Saudi Arabia feels like it's being decided. And people are advocating placing heavy sanctions on MBS. But what you argue is basically that this is not enough in order to do justice to Jamal. MBS is obviously a killer and he needs to be punished, but that's not enough to do justice to Jamal. I mean,
1: let's zoom out a little bit. I think that Jamal's Jamal's case and the battle for justice in his case has really evolved beyond. It's not really about Jamal anymore. It has evolved into a conversation about the U.S.-Saudi relationship, but also about U.S. foreign policy, U.S. policy concerning the Middle East in general and really concerning working with dictators in general it's become much more than about jamal and we are sitting here at a point where we have just we're, we've we've just survived those four horrible years under trump in those years and this is the most important thing to understand trump was not an aberration from the system he was basically taking a lot you uh, know trump's period basically took a lot of uh, existing tendencies within the U.S. establishment and took them to really their logical conclusion in a very brutal way. One of those was his embrace of dictators. When we say that Trump embraced dictators, we don't really mean that actually did not exist before. That was, that has been American policy for a very long time. But Trump really took it to the extreme, to the point that it became so ugly and so in-your-face that... It, you know, it really created this moment of reckoning. And the fact that Jamal had to die in order for this moment to happen is, of course, very painful. But in a sense, this is the chance for us to actually get some justice for it. It means, and of course, it's not just about Jamal, but, but really for everybody, all the Khashoggi's out there who, who faced a similar fate. We need to think further than simply MBS. There is this paradigm of retributive justice in the united states unfortunately this idea that uh, a crime happens so let's just come down really hard on the guys who, who did it this is not enough because it does not make the it doesn't really make the the victim whole
0: yeah you wrote quite eloquently in the article and i'll make sure the link to it is in the description of this episode that as friends of jamal We've been really frustrated over the last couple of years by seeing, and especially now, by seeing how much of the focus has been placed on the murderer and the murder itself, rather than on the victim and what he loved and what made him take such chances. And any response to the crime has to put the victim first, otherwise it's not really doing justice to the victim, it's just punishing the perpetrator. And with the Biden administration's response now, you're arguing that we have to place freedom of speech at the top of the agenda we've so many of us have uh, got stories about our times with jamal and how he how we met or things we did together and i've been struck by how many of those center free speech and some kind of advocacy for free speech in them it's basically what he dedicated the last year of his life to he left saudi arabia and he finally broke with the government after a lifetime of defending them over the issue of free speech. And it was his his greatest cause, his his obsession. And that's why it has to be centred in the response.
1: Absolutely. Jamal, really, his main concern during the last year of his life was really free speech. It was really the public sphere of Saudi Arabia, which he, before, prior to the rise of Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia has, had probably the most dynamic public sphere in the Arab world. Mostly it was on Twitter. And Twitter basically created this uh, this alternate space where people could express themselves freely because the official spaces, whether it's like official newspapers or radio station or TV station, etc., were completely dominated by the government. And so suddenly comes this opportunity for people to, to simply pick up their phone and express themselves. And they did it enthusiastically and very proficiently. And that was the case in 2014 and 2015 and 2016 until the rise of Mohammed bin Salman and the election of Donald Trump, especially. And then he completely, you know, he came down on this with with brutality and with efficiency.
0: I'm always amazed by it. I, I always find it so difficult to explain how deeply this, how deeply this resonates with us to someone who, who didn't experience it. The Saudi public sphere and the Arabic public sphere in general was incredible before 2015. We were seeing discussions that we had never seen happening before, and they were happening in public between people who had never spoken before from different groups in society. We were, we were so excited by this and we were in love with it. And I think so many children of the uprisings were. And I think Jamel was as well on some level. And I remember how excited we were to meet him. Even after having been frustrated by his writings for so long, as we've mentioned on one of the older episodes, we basically thought, like, we were seeing what he was writing after he went in exile and how he was speaking online on Twitter. And we saw how distressed he was by the fact that it was no longer possible to have this free exchange of ideas because Twitter had become a swamp, Arabic Twitter had become a swamp of bots and trolls and abuse and pro-government propaganda and he could just no longer hold the conversations he wanted to and that's all he wanted to do and we were so excited to meet him because we wanted to tell him about this new project we were thinking of monitoring the disinformation and going after disinformation accounts
1: yeah but i I think there's there's an element here to 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 explain for context it wasn't really just the bots so the disinformation output is only part of government action uh in 2017, in September 2017, uh, they arrested a, a very large number of, of intellectuals. And a lot of these intellectuals are still in prison. Some of them have even died in prison. And many of them right now, a lot of them are are facing actually death sentences from since then. Like so this is September 2017 uh, round of arrests. And then in, in May of 2018... He arrested the the feminists, the women's rights activists of Saudi Arabia, the most prominent, including Lujain al-Hadloul and her colleagues. Of course, Lujain has been released uh, provisionally, but uh, many of her colleagues are not. So it wasn't really just a matter of the bots. The bots basically was what MBS did to fill the space that was emptied brutally through arresting and brutalizing and torturing a lot of people
0: this was like like i mentioned this was the final straw for jamal because he was a lifetime writer and newspaper columnist he was fascinated by the free exchange of ideas he used to talk about reform and he believed deeply in changing the government and he was one of those people who he didn't believe in radical measures until the last year of his life he believed in changing things from within and he was doing that he was speaking to princes he was speaking to ministers within the saudi government and he was advocating for change he would write columns in saudi newspapers which would push them which would shift public opinion along the way towards changing policies for the better and reforming saudi arabia and he suddenly found overnight He was no longer able to do this. He already had a previous experiment where he tried to create a TV channel and it was shut down within hours of launch. And now he found himself fired from his job and blacklisted by all Saudi newspapers, unable to write for them. And he knew that if he returned to the country, he would probably end up in the Ritz-Carlton or uh, a less extravagant prison.
1: Yeah, I think it's important here to, to also remind that even though Jamal believed in the Saudi system, at the, at the time, of course, he actually absolutely believed that he was doing the, the right thing by, by, by advising princes and advising kings. At that time, we did not agree with him. In fact, like you said it yourself, we were actually deeply frustrated with him. We thought that whatever he's, do- he's doing, he's basically the moderate in, a, in the negative sense of the word, the guy who's basically lending his his support and legitimacy and credibility to a system that cannot be reformed. So it's almost like the same kind of situation that happened with the Americans and Trump, where Trump basically took certain tendencies of the American establishments to their extreme. MBS did the same thing. And that's when, you know, that actually forced uh, Jamal to really contend with the reality that, you know, this is not working and another way has to. This is when he became, he went from being a journalist and a, and a consultant to being really an activist. He never really called himself an activist. He never really called himself a dissident either. But I think he absolutely was both of these things.
0: But then I also just want to, to mention... turn back
1: to the the impetus of of the piece. Uh, look, just just okay. before you do that,
0: I want to mention yeah. a couple of other names because I feel like there's a, a dangerous tendency to exoticize things by making out that either Jamel was totally unique and the only person doing this, or that there was nobody doing this. And when you think that nobody, when you think that nobody was doing this, then you fall into the trap of thinking when MBS came with his social reforms, he was truly unique and therefore essential. In fact, the prisons are full of people like this. There's Abdullah al-Hamid, may he rest in peace, died in prison after medical neglect last year during the Covid crisis. He was the father of Saudi constitutionalism and the guy is like one of the US founding fathers and he's speaking about checks and balances and limitations on power and all of these things but from an Islamic context and an Islamic paradigm which is convincing to the society which he lives in, because he comes from within that society. There are people like Salman al who's a traditional Islamic scholar, who again was doing, uh, he was having important discussions, taking on extremist tendencies in society and talking about social reform. And he, I believe he even backed constitutional governance before he was jailed. And again he's in and out of i think he's being tried in terrorist court he's been in prison since that crackdown in 2017 he's, he's his health is failing he's in a very bad mental state he's a frail old man and we're extremely concerned about him. You mentioned Lujain al-Hadloul, who is out provisionally, but I believe under house arrest and travel ban. She has many feminist colleagues. There are other people like Hassan Farhan al-Maliki, another scholar, Islamic scholar, Abdullah al-Maliki, a young intellectual, Isam al-Zamil, a young economist and entrepreneur. There, there are so many people who are playing a role with their writing and their ideas in changing Saudi society and there are yeah. so many other jamels
1: and this is why this is why i uh, take issue with uh, with too narrow a focus on punishing mbs because in many cases punishing a dictator who is an absolute ruler who simply has so much control over his society can very easily become uh, the wrong cause because you're really focusing on isolating him but then if you isolate him and make put him on the defensive and make him even more paranoid he can so easily turn around and oppress his own society, become more repressive and more paranoid, put more people in prison, torture more people. And of course, this really raises the question of what can we do? We can't really let him get away with it. But at the same time, it seems that we're stuck with him because of the level of absolute control that he has, because of how much how he really destroyed the Saudi system from within. The internal checks and balances are really gone. Even though, just like Jamal said several times, it was never a democracy, but it wasn't really that much of an absolute monarchy. It was more of a consultative system, even though authoritarian and autocratic, but still, it was there was some kind of a consultative mechanism, and that's just gone. And that, this is the whole point of writing the article, because I said the right response would need to be forward-looking, and would need to actually center the, the main cause for which Jamal died, which is freedom of speech, so what I suggested that the United States do is place as much pressure as it can towards, of course, the. I, I'm not a policy expert here. I'm not the. I'm not uh, sitting in the State Department. They know how much leverage they have, and it is a fact that they have so much more leverage that the states, the U.S. has m- much more leverage on Saudi Arabia than the reverse. But then they need to push towards towards release of prisoners. One example we have seen is the release of Walid Fotehi. And Lujain would never have been released if not for for Biden's election. If Trump was still in the White House, Lujain would still be in prison. So there is is leverage that they can use, and they need to use it towards release of these prisoners, lifting of the travel bans, and ensuring that there are no more crackdowns on free speech. And the reason why this is important is because the United States has for decades been following a strategy of containment, of trying to pressurize and manage bad actors even actors who used to be allied with it, such as Saddam, for example. And then, you know, if you focus only on punishing bad actors without helping the societies that they brutalize, this is going to be a continuous thing. You'll never be able to, if you want to really, if you're serious about pulling out and, you know, ending those forever wars, ending these, you know, th- these unconscionable relationships with such bad actors, you need to, fo- to foster and allow the rise of strong societies. Your alliance with these guys is really what's eviscerating these
0: societies. And that's really the meta-message zooming out and this is the main theme of our book the middle east crisis factory which is out in the uk in april and out in the us i believe in around august late summer it's basically um the zoomed out vision of foreign policy and what does a progressive foreign policy look like in the 21st century we understand the us's frustration with forever being dragged in to other conflicts in other countries And we're not asking for that to continue. We're not asking for the US to come along and fight our fights for us. We're just asking for it to stop tipping the scale to to favor our oppressors and to give us a fair chance. And in this context, what that fair chance looks like is just playing a role in safeguarding freedom of speech so that all of these reformists in Saudi Arabia and beyond have the opportunity to participate in these battles of ideas and to persuade their societies and take their own countries along the road to reform.
1: Yeah, and, and this is really good policy. It's not just a, I mean, of course, it is morally good, but it's also good policy because you don't want to manage, you don't want a, a prolonged campaign of pressure that would, would be diplomatically exhausting and reminiscent of everything else that says, that the United States has been doing. The best thing to do is to establish, is to foster the rise of internal checks on NBS. And not only an MBS on other dictators in the region. The best way to do that and the first way to do that, the beginning of the path, is to allow people to speak freely.
0: And this is what people in the region want anyway. Saudi civil society is incredibly vibrant. There's a Yemeni civil society, there's an incredibly vibrant Syrian civil society, Egyptians, Libyans, and they want to be the checks and balances on power within their societies. And In the long term that's the only sustainable option for these uh, movements to be uh, the ones responsible but in order for that to happen there has to be a removal of the structural factors that prevent them from being able to play this role
1: يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو زمانا